Well, have you guys ever found yourself in the midst of a social situation or event in which you felt trapped and could not escape? If you're a visitor, you might be thinking, yes, I'm in one right now. <laughs> Maybe you've been on a bad blind date or found yourself at an awkward family gathering that you did not want to be at. Early in our marriage, Kelly and I were invited by a coworker to go to a play in which a friend of theirs was starring. We really did not want to go, but Kelly and I felt close to this coworker and um, their spouse, and so we went anyway, and we thought, well, we'll go, and we'll just sit in the back, and we'll escape through the back door when the lights go down if it's really bad. The problem was, was that we showed up, and there were about 20 chairs in front of a small stage. It was a neighborhood play for adults. And we sat down, and we thought, we're going to be here a while. Why on earth would we be ensnared, stuck? Why would we be trapped in that place? Well, because in a crowded room of 3,000 people or 10,000 people, nobody cares if somebody gets up and walks out. But in a space that small, even the relationships to complete strangers held us. They were strong. They made sure that we stayed there. This is what kept us in that horribly awkward situation. Many people don't even like churches that are small. It's funny, years ago, this church would have been considered a mid-range to maybe even larger um, church. Today, it's considered tiny. Why? Because there are churches of thousands upon thousands. And one of the reasons that we as Americans love those churches is because, as you all know, you can hide in a church like that. Nobody cares if you get up and leave or not. Here, it's a little bit more awkward, especially if you have high heels on the concrete floors, right? Now, that shouldn't stop you. If you have to go to the bathroom, feel free to get up and go ahead and go. But the reality is, is that the relationships are what hold us. The amazing power of relationship is, it's a power that causes us to override our logical cognitive faculties and be held and ensnared in the midst of situations we would otherwise never choose. In counseling, I meet with people constantly who relate to me traumatic situations and they say to themselves, how on earth did I end up in that situation? Well, the power of relationships. What I hope to show you this morning is that the same thing can happen with becoming ensnared in relationships that will lead you towards worshiping a false god. We have to be very careful. We have to be aware of this. And that's why he uses the words, take care. A theme that we see throughout Scripture is that relationships have the power to draw us closer to God or they have the power to drag us farther away. And this morning, as we look at the end of Deuteronomy 12 and through Deuteronomy 13, what we'll see is that Moses acknowledges this truth. He doesn't try and hide it. He, in fact, agrees with it and acknowledges it and says, that is why we need to be careful of the relationships we have. Are they relationships that will ensnare us and drag us into idolatry? And from this high-level, all-encompassing warning that he begins with, he will then speak to three types of relationships or three groups of people that often cause us to fall away from our covenant faithfulness to God without even meaning to. You'll notice in the reading that we just had, there is a phrase, enticing them secretly, as if it was in the dome of silence, right, from Get Smart. Uh, That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about something that's not obvious and in front of you. And so then he's going to give practical commands to Israel, from which I believe we can draw a very practical contemporary application. And so today, what we're looking at, if you want to write down the title of the teaching, is The Power of Relationships. The Power of Relationships. Well, let's jump right into our text this morning. And the first thing that we see is a warning. He says there in verse 29, When the Lord your God cuts off before you nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, take care that you be not ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, how did these nations serve their gods? That I also may do the same. And so the first major point that we see today is this. Take care that you are not ensnared into following a false god. Take care that you are not ensnared into following a false god. The language here is very interesting, isn't it? Take care, be careful, beware that you are not ensnared. You guys use that word often, ensnared? I don't think we do. Unless you go out and you hunt rabbits, you're Elma Fudd, right? Don't be ensnared. We don't use ensnared all that often. 
who ensnares to be caught unaware in a snare or a trap. You can think of a bear trap that clinches its teeth around your ankle or a snare with a rope that catches a rabbit and holds it in the air. If you're a Star Wars fan, you can think of all of them getting caught up on uh, the planet that the Ewoks are on there where they all get caught up there. And you guys know that scene, right? Uh, The little guy, which one is he? R2-D2, he's got to use his little saw to cut them out, right? That's a snare. They were caught unaware. And these are things that are not knowingly traps we walk into. Nobody goes, oh, a bear trap. Let me step on it and see what happens, right? Instead, we unknowingly walk into it and are caught without having a chance to fight or step away. One of the lies we tell ourselves is that I don't have to beware because I'll just know. Well, the reality is we don't. We don't know when we're being drugged away from the Lord. This is such a great image for how sin gets us and how relationships that drag us away from the Lord get us. Uh, these sins of, uh, or the brokenness that is following after a false god, um, we go along minding our business, not realizing that it's happening, and then one day we notice. And guys, I've talked to so many people, uh, especially in our early 20s or late teens, we might have zeal for the Lord, but the more time goes on, and suddenly soccer camp comes, and suddenly you're driving around the minivan, and suddenly you're saving up for retirement, and you hit a certain point. I'm going to be 40 this year. I know that's not super old, but I still am like, wow. Time has flown by, and have I grown closer to the Lord, or have I gone farther away? Time will get us, and we'll notice that it was a slow but sure fade away from the Lord or towards Him. Now, there's also the implication here that taking care means being discerning about who you follow. Notice it says, not ensnared to follow them. Who you're following is very, very important. Are you following people that are going to lead you in zeal for the Lord, Or are you following after people that aren't? I find it interesting that in this age of social media, we we use that phraseology, don't we? It's who you follow. Well, it's no big deal. I'm just getting sports scores and paying attention to pop culture. But who are you following? Now, one might hear this phrase in verse 30, uh, this idea of asking the question, how did these nations serve their gods that I also may do the same? And you might imagine an Israelite out in the blue one day, out of the blue one day saying, you know, I really think I'm interested in figuring out what those Buddhists do. Let me type it into Google and figure out how to serve Buddha. But that's not at all what the picture is here. The biblical narrative and theology that we see as we read around this section is that people of Israel were easily assimilated into the surrounding cultures. And so it wasn't that they one day woke up and said, you know what, I want to worship a different god. It was that slowly but surely they became what's called syncretists. They started to keep their own religion and drag in other things and adjust their religion so they thought they were still worshiping Yahweh, but in fact what they were doing was worshiping a false view of Yahweh, which is no view at all. They were worshiping a false god. And so let's look at Scripture and see the story. We can go back to the story of the golden calf right off the bat. You guys recall that story after Moses was gone up in the mountain receiving the law of God, the people approached Aaron and they cried out and said that Moses was obviously dead or gone and so they needed him to make them an idol that they could worship. And so they gathered all their gold together, threw it in the fire and fashioned it and out came this golden calf. And notice the wording that Aaron uses when he describes this calf. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. You guys have been with me long enough. Whenever you see the capital L-O-R-D, behind it is the Hebrew name of Yahweh. It's the Tetragrammaton. So he said, this golden calf is the same God who brought us out of Egypt. They rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, the worship that accompanied this false god was not playing checkers. It wasn't playing Parcheesi. Rising up to play is a metaphor, another way of saying that they engaged in cultic fertility worship, which included depraved sexual practices. They rose up and said, this is Yahweh, and the way he must want to be worshipped is like the fertility gods. What part of that has anything to do with the God that took them out of Egypt? The answer is absolutely nothing. They combined false characteristics to make up this idea of who Yahweh is to such a point that Yahweh was nowhere to be found. It resulted in worship that the Lord actually hated. It wasn't just, oh shoot, they kind of adjusted it. It was absolutely opposed to him. 
Israel had to fight the same issue throughout their history. If we get all the way into the prophets, the prophets stand up and they speak to the fact that they are literally worshiping Baal and Ashtaroth, Tammuz, in the midst of the temple of Yahweh. It's eventually what led to their exile because at the heart of their covenant unfaithfulness was the idea of removing the sanctity of this exclusive union between Yahweh and his people, replacing it with this combined weird view of fertility religions. Now, rarely do I walk into an American's home when I'm doing a home visitation and walk in and see an idol on their mantle. That's not a big thing. And so most of us, when we hear this, we think, well, none of us have idols. We don't have little statues. None of us bow down to a statue. So no big deal. I might see it if it's a person who's an an immigrant, right, of maybe a, a different culture and a different religion. And yes, there are the idols of success and materialism, lust. These are all still very much in play in the United States. But I think when we read about this idolatry and the idea that we're supposed to stay away from it, not be ensnared to follow after people into it, I think the thing that we need to hear this morning, especially as the church of God, as the church of Jesus Christ, is a bigger issue where we've combined false understandings of Scripture with truth and then called it the gospel. Or where we removed pieces of Scripture and then called that the fullness of the gospel. The reality is for us in here today, very few of you, I'm worried about you going and buying a small idol and bowing down to it. What I am worried about is that you are ensnared or you end up following into a false gospel that drags you away from the truth and fullness of who Jesus Christ is. The bigger issue is that we don't grasp the fullness of the gospel. And guys, there are entire followings based on name it and claim it, based on tongues, based on healings, based on the rapture. And these become their priority as opposed to the gospel. Now, all of these issues, whether you believe in them or not, are fine to debate and have as secondary issues, but we don't prioritize them or make them part of our core theology. The core of our theology needs to be the gospel, the gospel alone. Our inability to hold the word of God is what causes this. We must properly interpret and apply the word of God because you can see right here how easy it is. Hey, don't fall into this. But again, as I've shown you the last few weeks, go to King Solomon. How quickly did his relationships with the women he was sleeping with drag him off into being ensnared to follow false gods? And so we can apply this scripture today because we must be a church that constantly goes back to the word of God. We don't base our truth upon our relationships. We base it upon the Word of God. Amen? Your brothers and sisters, we have to be people that base our beliefs not on the statement, I think, or I believe, but in the statement, the Word seems to say. And then we need to be willing to dialogue. I want this church to be a place where we heartily recognize that it is a sin to discuss what the Bible says without our Bibles open. Have you ever noticed that? How readily Christians debate theology without their Bibles open. We have to become a church that views this as something that is broken, not as the norm. We want to create an environment in this church where dialogue is okay, and hard discussions and disagreements are okay. And you don't have to believe exactly like I do, or exactly like our leadership does, as long as as we are all based upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to create an environment of looking together to the word to inform all that we do and believe. We want to be a church that is comfortable with tensions and theological dissonance where people worship together with different opinions on various theological topics. We want to be a church where you can have people that believe in infant baptism or creedal baptism, that believe in egalitarianism or that believe in complementarianism. You know why? Because those aren't the main issues. The gospel of Jesus Christ is. At the same time, I want us to be a church that recognizes when the false gospels begin to rear their ugly heads. And man, there are a lot of them out there. Have you guys noticed how many false gospels there are out there? I'm going to read you a list that I've kind of compiled from various places and even thrown in some of my own. But I want you to notice how many of these things, some of them, when you read them, you think, well, that's actually part of the gospel. Yes, it's part of it. But the reason it's a false gospel is because it's been made the whole thing, okay? So let's go through these. And some of these, you can write down the name, and then if you want to get more info, you can go back and listen to the teaching. I'm going to go through them pretty quick. But I want you to just kind of check off which ones you've heard in the church or seen in the church. The first one is this. 
the moral gospel. First, the moral gospel. This is where sinful behavior is the issue and not our sinful nature. You give us enough rules and we can exercise our willpower to be good moral people. That's the false gospel of the moral gospel. Secondly, is the unconditional love gospel. This is the gospel that says, God loves me no matter what I did, what I do, or what I will do, and no matter how long I keep on sinning. Now, it is absolutely true, guys, that God's love is unconditional based upon what you have done previously. But once you engage in a walk with him, he's calling you to sanctification. And so it's not unconditional at that point. It's contra-conditional. In spite of your sinfulness, he loves you and he's calling you into relationship. Well, next is the therapeutic gospel. This is where sin, the problem with sin, is that it robbed us of our sense of the good life. It robbed us of our happiness. And Christ's death gives us worth and helps us to find happiness. Now, is this a part of the gospel? The true gospel? Absolutely. The Lord gives us worth and gives us happiness. It is not the core reason he came to die. Next is the motivational gospel. The example of Jesus shows us our full potential. You hear this all over the place in Christendom today. The Holy Spirit, man, he is the greatest motivational coach you will ever find. You can do it. The motivational gospel. And there's the escapist gospel. The rapture will happen in our lifetime and our hope is getting out of this mess. It's all going to burn anyway, so no need to concern ourselves with issues of social causes or stewardship of the planet. Just hold on. It's coming. The escapist gospel. Next is the social club gospel. The Holy Spirit has saved me into the church so I can finally have friends and finally belong. On the other end of the spectrum is the churchless gospel. Salvation is just about you and Jesus. Church is just an add-on as if it were an unnecessary spiritual discipline. The list keeps on going. How about the non-judgmental gospel? God is love. So his judgment is more about his goodness than it is about our rebellion. Let's only focus on his salvation, not what his salvation is from. Death, hell, and God's righteous wrath that you and I deserve because we're rebellious. Next is the get to heaven gospel. This is also very, very popular. Jesus died for the entire purpose so that Hans can get to heaven your name in the blank. So that I don't have to go to hell, but I get to go to heaven when I die. So I'm just waiting at this point and living my life waiting for heaven. What matters is not a life growing in holiness, but a sinner's prayer I said years ago at camp. Next, the do-over gospel. This is very popular as well. Eternity is one big mulligan, if you're familiar with the golf phrase. Everything in this life will go away and there won't be any memory and eternity will be perfect. Just wait for the do-over. Next is the activist gospel. The kingdom will advance to build a just society and the gospel is seen through cultural transformation. If we can just get everyone to get along and sing John Lennon's Imagine, we will finally be okay. The mystic gospel. The priority is an emotional experience and union with God. The church's job is to facilitate that mystical union. A church that doesn't make me feel close to God, well, it must not be spirit-filled. And lastly, and this is uh, from Michael Lawrence up at Hinson. Love this. He wrote a, uh, It's part of the book that we'll be covering called Conversion in our discipleship groups. It's the Gospel of Nice. We condemn the sin of the world and not our own. We call our own sins, mistakes, or struggles. Church is the place to feel good, not be challenged nor convicted. And the highest virtue is to be nice. The Bible is full of stories about how to be good rather than one great story that points us to the only one that is good, Jesus Christ. Now you guys could probably add to that, couldn't you? But this is a list of the false gospels that you will hear Christians utter constantly. I'm blown away by how often I hear people talk about these things as if they are the gospel. All of these false gospels create a God that is a half-truth of who the God of the Bible is. And guys, when we're dealing with a half-truth theologically, we're dealing with a whole lie, not just a half-truth. 
And there's a difference between growing in knowledge of who God is, starting with very little knowledge and adding to it. There's a difference between that and completely misunderstanding a crucial piece of who he is and the gospel that he proclaims. And so many Christians find themselves ensnared by these false gospels. We must recognize that theology that does not align with Scripture is a slow fade into worshiping a false god. And we need to hold one another accountable to the word. Notice what the response of the Israelites is to be in here. Take a look there in chapter 13, verse 10, for example. Notice what their response is to be. Uh, Starting in verse 9, the the person that's a brother or a son of a mother or a son of a daughter, um, it says in verse uh, 9, you shall kill them. Is that kind of serious? I mean, there's no real way to misinterpret that, right? You know? You shall kill them. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. You shall stone him to death with stones because he sought to draw you away from the Lord your God. Uh, What comes to mind is Jesus standing before his good friend Peter who had just said, man, Lord, you are the son of the living God. Oh, man, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. A few minutes later, Jesus, you can't go die for us. Get behind me, Satan. Now, husbands and wives, I would not recommend you use that when your spouse is not really following the Lord all that well. probably won't go well for you. But we must think about how serious this is. In the case of this person who was a close family member, they are to kill them. And stoning is actually very important for you to understand here. This seems extremely barbaric to us, doesn't it? We associate it right now with uh, Islamic people and how they will stone a person for random acts that they decide are wrong. But stoning is not mentioned as a form of capital punishment outside the Bible. You must understand that. It was specific to the Bible in ancient Near East law codes. In those Eastern, uh, Near Eastern law codes, it was usually drowning or burning or impaling or beheading. And in each case, it is an official body, not the community at large, that is charged with carrying out the punishment. The reason stoning was implemented by the Jews was because stoning requires that everyone in the community take on the responsibility of holding the unrepentant party accountable. If you were the one person who said, I don't like what you're saying, I'm going to throw a rock at you, you might knock them out for a little while and you might cause a bloody nose, but they're not going to die. It was only by the entire community saying, we refuse to submit and agree with what you're saying. That's why stoning was important. The death of the guilty party came in the decision of the whole community, not just one person in power or a few people in power. Now for us, we're not going to bring this back, right? Don't worry. We're not going to think of this as something that we need to import into the New Testament, but we need to understand the principle. This speaks to the fact that we are all, every single one of us in this church, responsible for the gospel witness of this church. Now, that doesn't mean that if you dislike something I say in a sermon, you can come up right after the service and say, you know, I hate what you said, right? That's just not nice. But you can say, you know what? Let me check this out with the Word. Let me go to Hans and see what he thinks. And let's open the Bible and let's discuss together so we can understand if what is being preached from the pulpit is actually the Word of God. So we read this and we look at the fact that In Deuteronomy 12 and 13, they were taking this so seriously that when someone disagreed with the truth of who Yahweh was, they would be taken out of the community. They would potentially even be killed. They dealt with this seriously. And why did they deal with it so seriously? Because they held the truth of who Yahweh was with such importance, with such weight. And I think one of the reasons that these false gospels have so easily permeated Christendom is because we just don't hold the gospel with any weight anymore. We have bought into the bumper stickers we read out on the freeway that say, coexist, tolerance. Oh yeah, it's no big deal if they have a completely whack view of what the gospel is. They must be Christian, they're nice people. But the Bible calls us to hold the true gospel very tightly. And what is the true gospel? Well, here's the true gospel. All mankind is guilty of rebellion against the holy creator God. By our very nature of selfishness, we show that we are part of the kingdom of darkness that desires to usurp the authority of God and replace it with our own authority. Every decision we make outside of submission to God is part of that rebellion. And our very nature is sinful rebellion. 
But God, in His divine love, saw our brokenness and from the beginning initiated a plan whereby He would crush the head of the original adversary. He would crush the head of Satan and bring His creation back into victorious triumph over evil. And to accomplish this plan, He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, in the flesh, the incarnate image of the Father, to proclaim the inauguration of that new kingdom. And then Jesus died on the cross as the ultimate sacrifice. Dying the death that you and I deserve. Being separated from the Father in the way that you and I deserve. Taking on our very sinful nature. And in that death, Jesus satisfied our debt against the Father and was enthroned as King over God's new inbreaking kingdom. He rose, proving that He was indeed victorious. And He ascended into heaven, taking His rightful place at the right hand of the Father. He poured out His Spirit on His people so that we would then act as reflections and proclaim this truth to the ends of the earth, begging everyone around us to repent from the kingdom of darkness and turn towards Christ's grace and mercy and authority. This is the true gospel. Amen? Taking pieces of that that feel better or are easier to try and get someone to grab onto, that does not make the gospel clearer. It makes it cloudier. And it has the possibility of leading people astray. I can't even tell you how sorry I am for the many times in my early Christianity I would go out and I would evangelize with this message. God has a good plan for your life. Accept Him and you'll find out what it is. Is that the gospel? Oh, that was false. That was a false gospel. And I beg for the Lord's forgiveness forever bringing that out as a potential of being what the gospel is. In fact, the Bible says that you start following Jesus, will it make your life easier or harder? Harder. Because you're fighting against the very kingdom of darkness in which you exist. Take care, dear brothers and sisters, that you are not ensnared in the midst of a false gospel. Hold tight to the true gospel, that Jesus died, that he rose again, that he's seated at the right hand of the Father, waiting to come and fulfill everything that his kingdom is on this earth. Take care. If you're a person who doesn't know Jesus and you've never accepted the fullness of that gospel and what it means for your life, I would love to speak with you after service. If you're a Christian in here today, maybe you were reading through that list of false gospels and you went, "Uh uh-oh, that's the one I believe. Well, today's the day to repent and turn your eyes to the true gospel. Well, the question then remains, We mentally know that these are false, but how do we suddenly find ourselves there? How did I get to a place where I was preaching a gospel that was God has a wonderful purpose and plan for your life? How did we get there? We know that churches fade into obscurity and find themselves off the gospel rails, but how do they get there? Well, Moses answers by stating clearly that relationships are what often draw us there. He does so by outlining three types of relationships that overpower our logical sense of truth and can lead us into worshiping a false god. And so this is why the second point I want to give us today is this. We see in the rest of chapter 13, this overall point, if we are not watchful, it is relationships themselves that ensnare us. It is relationships themselves that ensnare us. He categorizes pretty much all relationships in three different ways. The first one he covers is the group called the prophet or the dreamer of dreams. Now, we can take this and we can apply it to our day today just simply by talking about spiritual leaders, people who rise up and proclaim that they have a special spiritual message. They have a special spiritual dream. I thought about putting up a couple of videos on the screen of people who do this in our current day, people that get flocked to, um, and I started to put them up and I realized I don't really even want to show you guys because it's so scary and so bizarre. If you want to, you can go Google it and find tons of people who are thought of as uh, religious leaders in our day who lead with this odd sense of, I have a special word from God. Deuteronomy 13, 1-3 says it there, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, Right? It's not like this person's a charlatan that goes, hey, look, uh, I'm going to tell you something from the future, and then it doesn't come to pass. We all kind of go, oh, that person's a charlatan. Yeah, this is a person who actually does the sign or wonder. And then it says, 
Let it, if, it, if the sign or wonder leads you to the place where it says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or the dreamer of dreams. So the thing that you look at to see whether or not they're real and they're from the Lord is not whether or not they can pull off a cool party trick. Not whether or not they say they have a word from the Lord that even comes to pass. It's whether or not what they're leading you to is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, in certain circles of Christendom, prophetic dreams, words of knowledge, prophetic words are the indicator to people whether or not someone should be listened to. How many times have you seen a TV evangelist say, you know, this morning I was in the shower and the Lord told me. In my early Christian walk, I was like, wow, that must be really cool. I would love to hear from the Lord. Guys, I have never heard an audible word from the Lord. I'll tell you right now. So if that is your basis for why you should listen to how I I leave this church, I can tell you, you should probably go find a different church because I've never had a bat phone to Jesus. Ever. Never. I am just like you and so is Patrick and so is the rest of our leadership. We are people that search the scriptures and want to know it and try to emulate who Jesus is. That's all we are. I could give you example after example of religious leaders and pastors who were found out to be morally bankrupt and yet... Because they state they receive words from God, they're followed. But guys, if we look at Scripture, the people that are called to look over and lead and care for the church are to be men and women of character, not miracles. Titus 1, 1 Timothy 3, 1 Peter 5, they speak to character, not people who get words from the Lord. What is it that makes these people worthy of following? It's the fact that they're trying to emulate Jesus, even in brokenness, and they want to walk in repentant humility, always striving after Jesus. It's their willingness to serve the body of Christ and lay down their life for them. But we are prone in evangelicalism to cry out that we want a king, that we want a celebrity. And so we begin to believe that pastor so-and-so or bishop so-and-so has a special gift, a special, what's the word that they use? Anointing. And in some cases, it's not even signs or wonders, but we begin to elevate pastors because they can seem to find things in Scripture we can't. Often that's because that pastor doesn't know how to exegete Scripture and he's giving you running commentary on his political opinions. It has nothing to do with Scripture. We need our Moseses because we are not comfortable with Timothy's and Titus's. And notice in verse 2, like I said, that it's a person who actually can maybe even perform. But guys, if you search the New Testament, what you will find is that there are two people, one person and then a group of people, that are referred to as anointed. The first is Jesus Christ. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ. That word Christ, it means the anointed one, the king. But notice who else is there in 2 Corinthians 121. And he has anointed us. He's talking to the church at Corinth. So who is it that's anointed besides Jesus Christ? The church. Every single believer. Here's another one, 1 John 2.20. But if you have been anointed by the Holy One, Uh, But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. John's fighting against Gnosticism there, where certain people have a special knowledge. They have a special word from the Lord. And John is saying, guys, you all have knowledge. Guess what? It's right here in your hands. You want to be a person who's anointed? Hold the anointed word of God in your hands and speak from it. And you will be anointed. Now, specifically, Moses calls out a group of these special religious mystics called dreamers of dreams. And this is huge right now. Do you know that you can go down to Bethel Redding and you can go to a class in that church that tells you how to interpret dreams? Guys, that is a church you need to be very careful of, even their music. Why? Because I don't know about you, but when I read the story of Joseph and of Daniel, they, I missed the part where they, it says that they decided to start a class up to teach all the rest of the people how to interpret dreams. You see, people who think that this is the way that you gain people's respect, they're doing it out of a means to try and just manipulate. Dear church, if you have a dream or a vision that you believe is from the Lord, make sure it is from the Word of God and lines up with the gospel before you ever speak it to another soul. Because the second you say, the Lord gave me a dream or the Lord told me, you put the listener in a very odd position. They can no longer use their discernment at that point to judge whether or not it is of the Lord because if they judge that it's not of the Lord, then they have to go against the relationship they have with you in order to challenge you. You've put them in a very bad spot. But this, guys, you know this. This is huge. 
This is how we talk in Christendom. The Lord told me. And we leave no room for anyone to challenge us. But guys, if you look at how Paul talked to the church, take the church at Corinth, for example. When he told them how this should happen, he says in 1 Corinthians 14, 29, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. You see, the reality is, is we have to be people that go to the word of God every time someone says the Lord said. Why? Because the Lord has already said right here. I'm a firm believer that the Lord does indeed still speak in dreams and visions on occasion. But the way that we know if they are true is to place them next to Scripture. And if we cannot, beyond a shadow of a doubt, see that it points toward Christ, well, I'm probably going to challenge whether or not it was from the Lord at all. And too often in the church, we use these words simply to bolster our own egos or give ourselves the ability to manipulate the person in front of us my favorite one is every time a Christian moves houses. This is, I mean, being a pastor, right? I've, every time, oh, this house, it's totally of the Lord. And then somehow it falls through. That wasn't of the Lord. But this house, this house is of the Lord. Well, how do you know? Did Jesus show up? Well, there was a cross on the wall when we went in. Guys, that's just mysticism. It's bunk. It's not truth. Love the Lord and then do whatever you want. Because your love of the Lord will drive you to follow his gospel truth. If you want to give someone your opinion, state that it's your opinion. If you want to give someone a word from the word, open your Bible and give it to them. You don't have to say the Lord told you. They can see that the Lord told you because it's in the word. Don't use the authority of the name of the Lord in vain. And Moses is stating that the biggest danger comes from one who says they represent God, but purposefully or even accidentally lead people toward a false view of God. And we must take care, dear church, that we are reflecting the Lord as he would have us. We must be reflecting the gospel, not some weird religious mysticism. Well, secondly, the second group that Moses speaks of, Moses notes close family or friend relationships that can ensnare us. You think the first section was a little bit awkward for you to hear the preaching on. Think about this one here, Deuteronomy 13.6. This gets really personal. If your brother, the son of your mother, or your son or your daughter, or the wife you embrace, or your friend who is as your own soul entices you secretly, saying, let us go and serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known, some of the gods of the peoples who are around you, whether near you or far off from you, from the one end of the earth to the other, you shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him, but you shall kill him. Woo! Crazy. In the last eight years this church has been around, I can't even tell you the number of people that my heart is broken for as I watch them suddenly get pulled away from the church or even from faith because of a parent, a child, a nephew, a girlfriend, or a boyfriend. Singles in the room, I am so, so sad at the number of single people, unmarried, who have had a zeal for Jesus. And then someone comes into their life that they fall for who is obviously not zealous for Jesus, but because they feel loved by them, they get drug off into obscurity. Don't let that be you. Our need of being wanted or loved or to belong overpowers the need to be allegiant to Christ very quickly. And you might say that would never be me, but guys, it's always us. Our need and desire to be wanted and loved quickly overpowers the need to be allegiant to Jesus. In the midst of implementing membership, one of the largest concerns voiced was not something doctrinal nor biblical. In fact, we had very few of those arguments. The biggest argument was the statement, other Christians I know don't have membership at their church. Other Christians I know don't understand this. What if those people in my family who don't have membership think I'm crazy? What if they think I'm joining a cult? My response was always the same. Have you looked at Scripture and the history of the church to inform your opinion? Or are you looking at other people? Instead, we let our need to be accepted by others inform our opinion, regardless of whether or not theology or the Bible or the orthodox history of the church speak it. One of the largest pushes behind churches shifting to accept lifestyles that the Bible boldly calls sin is because leaders within the church see those they are close with in those lifestyles. And they think, well, if God is love... How could he ever be speaking about my little Ricky? 
But dear church, this is the height of us fulfilling our sinful nature of putting ourselves in the position of judge and lawgiver and disregarding the law of God. It would be like taking my daughter to Disneyland and seeing that she's below the height requirement to ride the ride and then saying, oh, but you need to let her on anyway. She's got a really good heart and she really means well. Can't you just rewrite the rules so that she can get on? But to a far greater degree and an eternal weight. Is it any wonder that then that Jesus had to say basically the same thing when he was defining what it was to truly follow him as a disciple? Luke 14.26 says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciples. Brothers and sisters, it is not loving to protect those we love by not seeing them in reality. What love requires is that we base our definition of a true disciple off of Scripture and then hold those we love accountable to it. It is nothing but our sinful state that allows us to define what true discipleship is based on those that we love. We are recreating and redefining God's law for our purposes at that point. So dear church, take care that you are not led astray by redefining God's truth based upon those you are close to. Those of you in Christian college or in Christian schools, don't look around at the people who are in those schools and say, well, everyone here is Christian, so let me base my idea of what a Christian is off of the apathetic people before me. Look to the Word of God and say, the Word of God says what a zealous disciple is. I'm going to follow that, and I'm going to spur these people on to something greater. Well, third, the third group that Moses points out is this group of people that was made up of, in Hebrew, worthless fellows or sons of worthlessness, sons of destruction. It's there in Deuteronomy 13, 12. If you hear in one of your cities, which the Lord your God has given you to dwell there, that certain worthless fellows have gone out among you and have drawn away the inhabitants of their city, saying, let us go and serve other gods which you have not known. Then you shall inquire and make search and ask diligently. In other words, don't just accuse them. Figure out if it's true. And behold, if it is true that certain, um, and certain that such an abomination has been done among you, you shall surely put the inhabitants of that city to the sword. Again, a very serious response. Well, these folks are shown as having led astray an entire town. And Moses' point here is just because there are numbers, there are lots of people that believe this false truth, doesn't mean that it's truth. Guys, this is a picture of one of the largest churches in America. And every Sunday, this church teaches a false gospel. This is Joel Osteen's church down in Texas. Teaches a false gospel of name it and claim it. Of health and wealth. It is the definition of the prosperity gospel. And they draw a lot of people. That's an old NBA stadium. Just because numbers are there does not mean it is truth. In the case of Moses, he was saying, don't be led astray even if an entire city goes the way of idolatry. And I would say to you, don't be led astray even if an entire stadium is filled with idolatry. Listen closely to the word that is being preached. Does it sound like the Bible? Does it sound like Jesus? Does it speak to the gospel that we are sinners in need of a Savior? If not, then it's a siren song saying, let us go and serve other gods that you nor your fathers have ever known. Do not judge by numbers. Remember what Jesus said? Remember when he started to teach on something really uncomfortable and everybody left him? In uh, John 6.60, it says, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? So Jesus quickly changed what he was saying. No, that's not what it says. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, he said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. He shrunk his quote-unquote church. Look at Matthew seven thirteen through 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are, what's that word? Few. 
In all these cases, we let our relational pull cause us to go to the word with presuppositions and agendas and biases that we then read into the text. We figure out how the text can support the relationships we have instead of looking at our relationships and filtering them through the word of God. We must instead be people that go to the text and read it in the historical and grammatical and canonical context. We must go to it with a desire to hear truth, not a desire to make it say what we want to hear. Then we would just be people with itching ears. Your church, if you sense a passion from me today, it's because my heart wants to protect you. Take care that you are not led astray by redefining God's truth based upon relationships and not based upon the Word of God. And so we see this morning that the final point, we must take care that our relationships lead toward Christ, not away. We must take care that our relationships lead toward Christ, not away. That they lead toward the truth of the gospel, not away from it. All godly relationships are intended to point towards God's holiness. Remember, this is our divine purpose, to reflect His image. Parents are to reflect God's heart and train their children not only in how to be successful, but how to love, how to empathize, how to reflect Jesus. Friendships are to sharpen one another and push one another towards Christ and build one another up in holiness. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Marriages are to assist one another in fulfilling the command to subdue the earth in the name of our Creator and to produce godly offspring. Relationships are for the purpose of drawing us towards Christ, not away. And these are the relationships we must allow to have authority in our lives. We must take care around the power of relationships. And Moses doesn't disregard that. He, in fact, emphasizes it. Relationships are hugely important. And so what does this mean to take care? Just some points of application, and then I'll be finished this morning. The first point of application is, as a community, we must be serious about the consequences of giving room to anything that is not in line with Scripture. We must hold each other very accountable with the question of, okay, why do you believe what you believe? Can you show me in the Word? Now, this isn't judgment. This isn't being mean to one another. This is safety. We must hold one another accountable with the question of, why do you believe what you believe? And we must be comfortable to then go to the Word together and look for it. All of us have a responsibility for the gospel witness of this church. Then, secondly, as individuals, we must admit that relationships have power. One of the biggest things I find in counseling is that most adult human beings have fought that fact their entire life in order to self-protect. We must admit that relationships have power. It is innate within each of us from childhood that we desire to belong We desire to belong in our families. We desire to belong in our friend groups. And when we suffer neglect and abandonment, we think we've cast aside the power of relationships by isolating. But really what we're doing is convincing ourselves that we don't have a desire to belong, but really that's just the start of immense pathology and brokenness. Humans are created for relationship. And so we need to admit that relationships have power. Then third, because this is true that relationships have power, we must identify the relationships that point us to Christ or are for the purpose of evangelism and we must prioritize those. They either point us to Christ or they're for the purpose of very focused evangelism. And for those relationships that do not point us to Christ, those relationships that really just suck the life out of us, especially those relationships that suck the life out of us who are people that proclaim faith in Christ but show no fruit, well, I would suggest we need to work to reprioritize the place of those relationships in our lives. And I would suggest starting by going to them and saying something needs to change. We need to push each other on towards Jesus, not pull each other away from Jesus. Fourth, we need to begin using the word as a filter for what we believe. Do I believe in something because a church where I felt loved believed it? This is a huge one. Being a church planner, one of the the things that's not great, I love being a church planner, there's lots of good things, but one of the things that stinks about being a church planner 
is very rarely until you've been in it for 10 years and the children in the church start to grow up, very rarely do you have people where you were the first pastor somebody listened to. And so without a doubt, everybody comes in, and this is not a bad thing, everybody comes in with presuppositions that they learned from a previous pastor. But the number one thing I have to fight against is not, oh, I see something different in the word, but it's my first pastor told me, or the pastor that I loved said. But guys, that doesn't matter. Whether I say it or that pastor said it, is it in the word? We have to use the word as a filter for what we believe. Or maybe you... Uh, believe something because your parents believed it. And man, it's just too hard to step away from the idea that you could think something different than your parents. Or maybe you believe something because you feel like you want to belong to a given theological tradition. Man, those Baptists, man, they're so fun at parties. I want to be part of them, you might say. Well, we know that's not true, but you might say that, right? I want to be a Baptist, so everything I have to believe is a Baptist. One of the biggest ones in the last 10 years is, man, these Calvinists, these neo-Calvinists, these guys are cool. I have to believe in Calvinism. Let me figure out how to believe in Calvinism. Question is, does Calvinism fit with the Word of God? Does Arminianism fit with the Word of God? Has someone broken down Scripture based on the historical, grammatical, and canonical context? Have you been taught it exegetically? If you have, praise God. Not many people have. Or are your beliefs based on a teaching that was given by someone you loved and it was simply taken out of context or given a running personal commentary? Or maybe they even started with a topic and then used Scripture to back up their opinion. In these cases, we need to be willing to lay down what we've been taught and admit that we may very well have been taught and loved by teachers and pastors who are great people, but they might have been wrong in doctrine. You even have to do that with me, dear church. You might walk away from a Sunday and go, man, I need to double-check that in the Word. In fact, you should do that every Sunday. In those cases where I am off, please bring it to me so I can adjust. We have to base our theology off of the Word of God, not just off of relationship. And so my charge to us as a body this week is to apply these. I would ask that each of us take a concerted time away with the Lord and ask Him to reveal to us by His Spirit what relationships might we need to let go. What relationships do we need to keep but put boundaries in place so their opinion matters less to us? Which relationships do we need to invest in more so that we are drawn closer to the Lord? And lastly, why do I believe what I believe? Is it because I know Scripture or because I am hoping someone I I love knows Scripture? We must take care that our relationships lead toward Christ, not away into the worship of a God that the Bible knows nothing about. And so this morning, I hope we take this to heart because this is a serious word. It is so sad when I see people that I know love Jesus get drug off into obscurity because they simply follow the wrong person. So Lord, please give us ears to hear what you've said to the churches.